What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest is an interior designer who's become a household name. She's been frequently featured on HGTV as a host and mentor on Battle on the Beach and Build It Forward. She's a forward-thinking designer whose work is revered by many. She was hand-selected by Ellen DeGeneres as her brand ambassador on QVC and has been featured on Rachel Ray, Oprah, and many, many others. She is the principal and an interior designer at Tanya Nyack Design. Ladies and gentlemen, Tanya Nyack. <laughs> Hello, how are you? Great, welcome. You know, I've spent so much time with you over the last couple of days. <laughs> I know, it's been a crash course in Dan and Tanya. I know, and I love it, and I feel like I've known you forever. Well, Thanks thank for you. Me. I feel like I've known you forever as well, and uh, we'll just tee this up so just so everyone knows. We're here in Arizona at this conference called Hotec, mm -hmm. and I was interviewing you on kind of like what your story is. Oh, I forgot to also mention you're a podcaster. Um, <laughs> but like how you came to be and to be such an influencer and have successful businesses and entrepreneur and team builder and inspiration to many. Thanks. So we did that in front of what, 200 and something people? Yeah, it was awesome. Yep. I mean, you are a phenomenal interviewer. Let me start off with that first. Um, super grateful. Thank you for for your thoughtful questions today. I feel like you made the audience feel really inclusive in our conversation. One person came up to me after and they said that they felt like we were speaking to each person individually in that great big room of people, which is probably one of the best compliments oh, wow. you could get, right? We weren't up there just talking and I think that that's why us having a conversation was really important versus just standing at a podium and having a talk. Exactly. And because, well, in doing all these, like in the, doing these conversations, I don't moderate things that often, or if I'm emceeing an event, um, I'm really trying to figure out, okay, I may have be having a conversation here, but how do I make sure that the audience is engaged? Mm -hmm. And again, it's thinking about who they are, who am I talking to? It's an art. It's a skill. It really is. It doesn't come naturally for a lot of people. It comes naturally for you. I think it comes naturally for me as well. But when we're speaking, we're not getting lost in a conversation that maybe the rest of the group has no idea what we're talking about. I mean, that's important. It seems silly, but it, it happens a lot. Correct. And we got to understand the room. And actually, that's a really good transition point into like the question I ask everyone, which is, how do you define hospitality? Because in so many of the conversations, you know, it's about others, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that we were in front of all these people. But for me, I just really wanted to make sure that not only you were comfortable, but we were engaging everyone. So, right. Tanya. Yes. How do I define hospitality? Or what, yeah, how do you define it? Or like, what, or what does it mean to you? It means a lot of different things to me in a lot of different ways. Uh, on a personal level, I'll talk about how I define hospitality, but I'd also like to answer that question on a professional level. Mm -hmm. As a restaurant designer and a restaurant owner, I see hospitality from so many different perspectives and points of view. So I'm going to start with personally. Hospitality to me is having a guest in your home and making them feel so comfortable. And this is to the point where if somebody's staying overnight, there's a bottle of water 
on the nightstand. There's a little tray for their jewelry. There's slippers, <laughs> you know, the little things that are going to make sure that they feel like you thought about it and you made the effort to make them feel special and feel welcome. Asking them what they drink. Do they have food allergies? You know, having all of that on hand for when they do come. So I think I was raised with that from my mom. She is one of the most hospitable people in the world. Her love language is food, cooking mm. for people. So I feel like it probably comes from that. She's very nurturing. Um, from the restaurant and design perspective, I'll talk design. Mm -hmm. So when we design a space that is for hospitality purposes, I'll lean into restaurant because that's really my forte. I want to make sure that when the guest comes in, and I'm just talking about design, they are greeted by a warm and inviting space, that the lighting is at the right temperature, that the host at the host stand is welcoming with a smile, even though that's more operations, but at least the host stand is approachable. Uh, I also want to make sure that there's seating options in every way imaginable. Date night, family dinners, a group of girlfriends going out for the night. I want to think about every single potential scenario, ADA mm. compliance. I and mean, we were just talking about that a little bit up on stage. Um, you did a wonderful talk. Uh, there's a lot of things that are factored into the design, including the warmth and does the design match the menu? <laughs> I mean, that seems like a no-brainer, but you'd be surprised how many times you walk into a restaurant and it doesn't match the menu. So from a design angle, there's that. Now, my husband is a restaurateur. He does operations. And if you can only imagine what the first 15 minutes of any restaurant experience is like for us, <laughs> we do the whole, well, what would you do different? Well, actually, I'm very intrigued by that because to have to you both be entrepreneurs and have these restaurants and mm -hmm. you design all these other restaurants. I'm curious, like as a fly on the wall, when you're kicking off a new project that you own, a restaurant that you own together, and he's looking at it operational, mm -hmm. and you're looking at it from a de design perspective. I know, I'm sure you overlap on the margins, but what are the kinds of conversations you get in, or those little those battles about? Mm -hmm. Okay, I understand you want it to flow this way, but from an aesthetic, we you know we have to really think of our customer. What kind of, um, I guess, creative tension right, right. comes up in, in the birthing of many of these projects? I probably designed his first restaurant maybe 17 years ago. So I would say those battles were heavy in the beginning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's because we had blurred lines. I felt like if I was giving him input on the operations side of it, he's an expert at that, but I have an opinion. And he would give me input on the design side of it. I'm an expert on that. But of course, he has an opinion. And we've learned a little bit more to kind of stay in our lanes, so to speak. But we, we've found this wonderful synergy now. And I, I don't feel like we really get into too many kind of issues because we've, we've been doing this for so long, probably 25 different concepts at this point mm -hmm. in our, in, throughout our marriage, our relationship. So the, the underlying initial ones were, you know, I really wanted a curved bar. <laughs> well, a curved bar is a lot more expensive than a straight angled bar. Do you need the curved bar? He might ask. <laughs> and what would you say? Of course I do. <laughs> do I need the curved bar? Of course I need the curved bar. So then we'll have these conversations about the, the experience for the guest. 
and how it feels for them to sit at a curved bar versus the angle. If they're walking in the front door, are they walking into the corner of the bar? Are they looking at an angle? Because to me, that's harsh and it's not welcoming and inviting. So we might agree on a chamfered <laughs> cornered edge, you know, so we will meet in the middle and we'll get to that point. But uh, we've now done enough of them that I don't feel like we run into too many issues. I will push and he knows I'm very conscious with budget and all of those things. So if there's something I feel really strongly about, I will push for it. And he's now <laughs> better. And you always get your way. I mean. <laughs> um, okay. So. I think that that, from a design or aesthetic and an operational, I, I think that you know it's always a balance, mm -hmm. and I'm glad you always win on the design <laughs> side because, I uh, you know there's this, always this rumor that, or not rumor, it's more of a saying or thought that, if you're doing a hotel room and operations has all the say, it would be a stainless steel for sure room that you right. could just hose off mm -hmm. because it makes sense, it's efficient, yeah, and uh, you just turn them and burn them. That's Go. right, but. As people, we don't like that. Um, again, it's about how we feel in these places. And I think finding that balance between operations and design is, it's an art. It and is. There is science to it, but it's really, it's, it's an, an art. art. It is It is art. I, I agree with you. It's color, it's texture, it's different mediums. It's art, mm -hmm. 100%. But you did ask me to define hospitality. And I would say that hospitality my definition of it begins long before you experience that finished room. Hmm. Before a user, for a guest coming in, it is a lot about their marketing long before, you know, what does that resort look like? Ooh, I want to go there. Let me compare this main suite to that main suite. Is this one facing the ocean? Is that, you know, and there's a lot of comparison. So when somebody makes a commitment mm. to either dine at a restaurant or stay at a resort, they've put a lot of time and energy into it even before setting foot into it. So that is a huge part of this hospitality experience that people may not talk about often. And a major responsibility too. Right, to live up to it. Mm. So now you've got the bells and whistles, you sold it. Now can you deliver? And so having a guest come in and actually feel like they got what they paid for, they got what they came for, that's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And that is also just a whole other beast. So matching that, it's immersive, an immersive experience from start to finish, from planning to marketing to execution. And you know what the end goal is, right? No. A good Yelp review. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there are many goals. But yeah, ultimately... It's that marketplace of feedback mm -hmm. that really helps so much based on other people's past experiences. It changes the trajectory, good or bad, of how a business, hotel, or restaurant is, are going to operate. Right. And I even say it jokingly, this Yelp review thing, but it's a lot easier for someone to complain on Yelp than it is for them to write a good review. Good reviews are everything. So mm -hmm. I encourage people, if they have a great dining experience or a great server, or an amazing hotel experience to write about it. Mm. It goes so far. I mean, think about how many reviews you've looked at if you're buying a mattress, you know, totally. or you're, you're buying a pair of shoes online, you're gonna look at those reviews and, and you really focus on the bad ones, but when you see a good one, you're like, oh, okay. It's interesting on, the, on Yelp or other, even Open Table or all these kind of booking engines, on all these OTAs, I do find that many of them 
it's the negative responses that get posted, mm -hmm. right? And I do, but whereas I also find on Amazon, it's a much more helpful community. Somehow they do a good job of getting people to write five star and one star. Mm -hmm. So I'll always read like the best reviews, but then I want to check what what what's the bottom baseline scenario? I'm sure there's a whole big team behind Amazon making sure that both of those reviews are equally matched. <laughs> totally, but invariably that feedback from other people, other humans, is kind of, it it rings it's true. Essential. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're an entrepreneur. You have a design firm, but you have this whole other public persona. Right. I would say it's my secret life, but it's not so secret. No. <laughs> it is, it's very it, public. <laughs> it's out there and on the TV side. And I know you also have a podcast. It's called The Break. Mm -hmm. And we spoke about this on stage. But for those of us, for those listeners who who didn't hear that, mm -hmm. I think people are always intrigued. And you would all you that's a very intriguing question that I think I'm going to incorporate. Mm -hmm. um, but how did you get your break as far as working in working in bars? Uh, selling hearing aids, you're doing all these things, but you weren't really in your in your purpose and passion. I wasn't in my skin, if you will. Yeah. yeah. So how so how did you? You're going down this road. What kind of pulled you into a place where you're like, you know what, this is not who I am, mm -hmm. and I need to be on this other path. Right. What was that moment? Because I don't think we actually spoke about that. Right. I think that what happens in our lives, especially when we're going to school and then we graduate and then it's time to get a job and then it's time to, we're, we're trying to fulfill, in a dream world, we're fulfilling our own needs and what we want, but that's not, it's not we're too young at that point. I think we're filling our parents' dreams or, or checking the boxes off of what you're supposed to do when you graduate from college or, or whatever it is. So I feel like I was checking boxes off that just weren't even, it wasn't even boxes in my world. You know, I was just checking off some things. Okay, I went to school, I studied this, I got this degree, and now I'm working here. And none of it really applied to who I am or what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I guess shame on me for not being better at listening to that. But you know, I was young and trying to figure it out. And, you know, I, I did mention to you that uh, I, I come from India. I have immigrant parents that moved here from India, there were some very strict rules in my house and, and strong expectations. And so I feel like I was trying to meet those expectations. So what did I do? I bartended. <laughs> I bartended probably the last thing on earth that my Indian strict parents wanted me to do, you know, working in nightclubs, late nights or whatever. But, but that actually was the best thing that could have ever happened for me because it afforded me enough money to realize that in my day job, if it wasn't what I loved to do, then I was able to get out of it and not feel financially committed to mm. staying at that job, which I guess is good and maybe bad. I don't know. But it did give me the opportunity to take a breath. I went on a business trip with my sister. She was It was her business trip. I tagged along. We were in Spain. I didn't have a cell phone. It was long ago. <laughs> and I was just lying there, jet lagged and wide awake, looking at the ceiling. My sister was fast asleep. Didn't want to make a noise because I was so like thankful that she let me tag along and I didn't want to ruin her, her big meeting the next day. So it gave me a moment to think. And I think this might have a little bit to do with, uh, you know, I wish I meditated more, but I feel like this is kind of what might have happened. So to tell you that pivotal moment, it just, it was a moment of quiet. There was a moment where I was in my own head and it gave me a second to think about where my life was going. Was I happy? Is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? 
And it, all the answers were no. <laughs> Just Well, as we were up on stage and you were sharing this story, I wrote down the word intentionality. Mm -hmm. And I feel like maybe before you went on your current path, you were doing what just made sense, right? You're at in college, you're attending bar. After college, you're attending bar. You're doing other things. But maybe it was that moment of silence and introspection or reflection mm -hmm. that helped you set a path of intention. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, there was no outside noise. I didn't have friends calling or plans. I was just somewhere in a foreign land <laughs> with nothing but my thoughts. So I had that moment of, I am too young to be doing a job that I don't love for the rest of my life. And I don't care if I was in my 20s, you could be in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. You're always going to be too young to do a job that you don't love for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Does it get harder as we get older? Sure. We have more responsibilities. It's not easy to just get up and move. But that's why it's so important to not keep waiting. When you feel it, act on it. Otherwise, the longer you wait, the harder it gets to change and get out of that. It's like mud. Totally. Right? You, you sink, it's harder to get out. So get out while your feet are just kind of touching as, it. As you're saying it, I'm reminded of Danny Meyer, who wrote the book Setting the mm -hmm. Table and owns yeah. a bunch of restaurants and Shake Shack. Right. But he, he was in college. I think he was going to law school. and he, Or no, he was going to go to law school. He was going to take the LSAT. And he has this story, which... I read a couple times in his book, or I, I didn't read his, I read his book once. I listened to parts of it another time. But it kind of, it went over the first time I heard it, and the second time it really jumped out. Mm -hmm. But when his uncle was like, Danny, do you really want to be a lawyer? And he goes, not really. And his uncle said, you know, you're dead a lot longer than you're alive. And mm, it just powerful. changed the path of his life. And he started working in restaurants and learning everything. He already knew so much about food, but he committed himself to that. And look what he's done. Right. I mean, it was that it, that kind of push. When you were um, tending bar and, and doing all that other work before finding your, your true self, um, what was it like when, you're, when you went to your parents? You're like, mom, dad, I got a job tending bar. What did they say? At first, you know, because it was always a side hustle for me, I was, I was in school, I was studying, I was doing my, getting my, uh, bachelor's degree in marketing. So for them, they loved it. I was making a ton of money, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it helped a lot with paying for books and, you know, things like that. And so they didn't mind it. But when it became my only thing and I wasn't working for a while, I also wasn't married at the time. I mean, there were so many things, like such a disappointment, you know. And so I, I feel like it was okay. They they weren't thrilled about it, you know. My mom was always a little more open-minded to it, but my dad was, yeah, he came to this country because he had a full boat scholarship to MIT. Yeah. So his expectations were very, very high. Growing up in school, he'd always say, Tanya, if I got a B on a report card, I could have all A's and one B, and he'd be like, B stands for bad, <laughs> you know. I mean, truly, it was, it was pressure, you know. I love him dearly, and I'm so thankful for how he taught my sister and I both to have our feet firmly planted on the ground and to always, you know, not take things for granted and make sure you have a backup plan. So I am super grateful for all of that. But, you know, it was as a kid, it's a lot. Yeah. And then your mom, so he's B is bad. And what's your mom doing? Is she kind of echoing that? No, not at all. My mom is uh, just the most jolly, sweet, you know, happy-go-lucky 
person you'll meet. So, you know, even I I had made a decision to leave. This is yet another job. I was selling workwear clothing. This is right after school. And I thought, gosh, I'd really love to travel and backpack across Europe, <laughs> right? This is, this is after, I think, I, I don't even know the timeline of this, but I ended up backpacking through Europe and my mom was like, do it, do it. You need to go do it. And I thought, I think about that a lot now because traditionally that's not something you typically hear, you know, our Indian parents saying, but she was all for it. Well, I can't speak for my Indian parents. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I do appreciate that sense of adventure for her to push you. And mm-hmm. I wonder if it, if she followed her path and maybe there was some regret and she wanted to I do. live I think vicariously that. through you. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Interesting. Mm. Okay, so you're in Barcelona. You have this moment Mm -hmm. of reflection. Yes. And then how do you find your way to the screen? Right. So, well, I I ended up, there's a little baby step between that moment and the screen moment. So I ended up coming back from Spain. This is my sister's business trip when I had that moment of clarity. And I marched myself right into the Boston Architectural College, and I applied for a master's in interior architecture. I always wanted to be an architect. I just uh, didn't. (laughs) It's a much longer story, but I didn't follow that. And so at this point, I'm like, it's time. I just need to really do something that I want to do. And that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't tell anybody. I didn't ask anybody. I didn't want anyone to persuade me one way or the other. Mm -hmm. I find a lot of times that we often ask people, well, what do you think? Should I do it? What's your advice? They're not you. Only you know you, right? So it's it's important to, when you feel strongly in your belly, you feel strong in your gut that this is the right move, don't ask anyone, just do it. Mm. <laughs> just go do it. So I did it. And when I walked into the school, I got started. I filled everything out. I put my check down. And then every single thing in my life just, you know, like just suctioned right into place. And it was like, okay. This is where I belong. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And those magical gates just opened up. And all of a sudden, uh, there was a casting call for a TV show that the dean of the school told all the students, hey, we think that you should go audition for the show. It'd be a great learning experience. And so I did. And guess what? I got it. (laughs) I got the job. Wow. And that's how the TV thing happened. And how many people lined up at that first audition? There were probably... so. Collectively, there were probably 500 candidates. Just uh, from Boston or was it around the I think there was through areas in and around maybe even New York and Connecticut mm-hmm. um, because the production company was based in Boston at oh. the time. And so I got that job and I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> I didn't know what it looked like. I was horrible. <laughs> I remember looking at the producers and they were like, I don't think this is going to work out. <laughs> so, But you know what? I, I got bit by the bug and I, I love it. And one of the things that my dad had always taught me was, hey, you know, you don't know this TV thing can come and go. So you should try to have your business, try to keep, the, he was supportive of the show, but I think he didn't really get it. Mm. It's very outside of his, his realm. So I did, I always had a business. I did the TV shows. The one might've been heavier at a time than another. And I just kind of kept them both going. And the lesson I learned from that was that in television, I have a lot of friends that are freelancers, they're producers, they're writers, they're, you know, whatever they are doing out in the field. When there's no show, there's no money. 
Yeah. Right? And when there's no money, there's a lot of stress. And I luckily found a way to balance the two so that, hey, if a show didn't happen, it's fine. I got my business. Mm. I'll put my energy into that right now. So well, that, that's think about that was good. I was just at a party uh, the other night, and I saw a buddy of mine who's like a well-known actor, um, director, person. And I was like, so are you keeping busy? And he's like, no. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, the writer's strike. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, but was that intentionally that you had your feet in those two ponds, so to speak? Or I think it was just, again, it was my dad not really understanding what being on TV meant. And, and to him, it kind of probably seemed like a fun and games, kind of like another bartending gig kind of situation. I think it made him a little nervous. Like, what does this look like in the future? And so he was really pushing me to, you know, focus on having the business, mm. you know, taking clients and doing, but that's because that's what he knows. That's, that's what he's an architect and he really sort of in his business, like that, that's his life, you know? So for him, it made, that made sense. Mm. He could connect with that, that, that was relatable to him. I'm just, I'm curious, like, if you think about bartending and then architecture school, they both involve late nights, right? <laughs> Architecture school, you're in the studio pulling all-nighters. Mm -hmm. Bartending, you're up late, having a good time with everyone, making sure others are having a good time. Mm -hmm. um, are there any comparisons or contrasting ideas or feelings that you have about those late nights on either side? When I'm in architecture school, we were really working solo. Like you're in your own head with your own thoughts. And when you're bartending, you're social and you're making people smile and laugh and have fun. So it was a nice outlet mm -hmm. to do the bartending thing. But I always say there's no mistakes, right? And so every single step of our path, whether marketing for an undergrad degree made sense at the time or not, it certainly makes sense to me now. I use it every day. Bartending, why does it make sense? Because I know how to design a bar. Because <laughs> I know how it works. I was behind it. I know exactly where everything's supposed to go. So I learned a great deal about design from bartending. And that's why when you get in the argument with your husband about the round bar, mm -hmm. you're like, no, it needs to be, but we'll settle on a chamfered one. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, so I love this idea of no mistakes, right? I, as we were talking earlier, um, you said something similar to that, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but what I was thinking is I once saw this T-shirt, and I was in like, I made a big. Are I made we getting t-shirt wisdom right it now? T-shirt wisdom, what? and it knocked me out. Oh right? my god! Right? Someone asked about like failing, and uh, I was just in this place. I remember being on a bus going up to the Catskills with my daughter to go visit friends, and uh, there was this woman with a shirt, and I couldn't really read what it was, and she leaned fo she leaned forward a bit, and it said, "Failure is just unfinished learning," hmm. and it was like this clarion mm -hmm. bell ring that yeah. I was like, "Oh, that's okay. the wisest t-shirt." Yeah, wisdom. and who knew, who knew that T-shirt wisdom would change the course of my mood and feeling and state of mind? Say it again. So failure? Failure is just unfinished learning. Mm -hmm. It really is. And I, I think in a moment, when you're in a moment where you're not sure what the heck is going on, why did that happen? You don't, you don't know right now. You will know one day. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. And if you can tell yourself that, just give yourself the space to say, one day I'll know why this is happening, but right now I can't for the life of me figure it out. 
it's stressing me out, I'm overwhelmed, but just remind yourself that there is going to come a point in your life when you're gonna say, oh, mm. I get it, now I know. I met my husband because I bartended so long. <laughs> You know, is that where you met him? Yeah, he was the manager. I was a bartender, you know, and, and that's how that started. But if I wasn't bartending for as long as I did, I never would have met him. And when did you start bartending? Like, how old were you? Was it in college? I was too young. I was 17. I was cocktail waitressing. Wow. And then it led into bartending. It was like almost all, 13 years. All old. in Boston. Yeah. Gosh, wow. That's amazing. Huh. But I, I, I do think also going back to that kind of as a bartender being on stage, mm -hmm. right? It's very, very true. It's very like, cause you're there, you're very theatrical, not only serving, but you're really performing for others and getting the, the audience involved yeah. in your, in your show, so to speak. It takes a very uh, certain mindset, right? So we've all gone to a bar or a restaurant and the server just goes through the motions or the bartenders just takes your drink, doesn't smile no interaction, no engagement. They put the drink down, the drink tastes like shit. It's because they don't put any love into it or care or thought into it. And so it's, uh, it takes someone special. What, that, I'm just gonna digress for a second here. I don't know why it's so difficult for some people to realize that all you have to do is smile and the amount of money you're gonna make is gonna double. <laughs> it's literally, put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, just smile, <laughs> and you'll make more money. And you'll double your money. Right. It's just, um, it's unbelievable to me. I remember cocktail waitressing and they had these shots in a test tube. They tasted like garbage and it was a hot outdoor place and they would just get warm really fast and they were, they were just gross. Mm. But every shot I sold, I would make a dollar off of it. So I would make a dollar off of every shot I sold, but then I would get tipped also on it. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be out here selling these shots I'm selling these shots. Yeah. So I take the tray and I loaded it with ice. So all these other girls were selling their shots hot, gross. They would make like $20 that whole day. I walked out of there with 300 bucks after a short shift because I named them. <laughs> like they were blue and, and green and whatever. And I gave them these crazy, silly names. I had ice just falling off the tray. So the test tubes were like frosty. I would get people, like if they were celebrating, if it was a bachelorette party, have them on their knees, dumping, you know, just making it an experience yeah. and laughing with them and having fun with them. And I was making tons of money. I would have taken that shot girl job any day where everyone else hated it. Mm -hmm. I love how you say to put love into it because mm -hmm. again, it's like so much of this conversation or these conversations that I have, it's really, how do you, how can you really make others feel a certain way, but you have to be open-hearted to kind of feel where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. Then you can adjust, anticipate, be intentional, and put love into it, and almost. It's like food. You can taste love in food. Totally. And, then, and if you have that love and, and you're really into that kind of showmanship, you're taking people on a, on a roller coaster ride, like, and it could, and it, it could make such a huge difference. Whereas, you know, you go to those dinners and where you do the wine pairing, if the sommelier is like telling a story mm -hmm. about the pairings of the food, 
and I, some, I don't even know really what he's saying, but he's into it. He's passionate about You're it. Like hanging or on she, every word. Yeah, and then I'm able to suspend all disbelief, and they basically take me on a ride. Whereas I've been on other ones where they're just like, "Oh, this is some fancy wine." You'll get hints of blackberries and current, like and, reading a script. And I'm like, yeah. eh, I'm not really feeling it. Um, T-shirt advice. Yeah, I shared mine, but I'd never heard it put that way. Is that like a thing? No, I don't know. I just well, you said it, and I was like, it's T-shirt wisdom. A T-shirt wisdom. Yes. Okay, so T-shirt wisdom. Is there? Can you think of any T-shirts or bumper stickers or anything that? Oh, I had a fortune cookie once that Ooh. I always loved. This one, it was <laughs> never trouble trouble till trouble troubles you. Oh, <laughs> so don't don't get into it. It's fine. Let it go, unless something's really really troubling you. And I interpret it as communicate. Don't like beat someone up over it. But it's like. D never trouble trouble mm. till trouble troubles you. That's a lot of tr that's a lot of letters to fit on a little like, fortune cookie. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Did you frame it? No, but I just remember liking it. I don't know why. It just seemed to be like a quippy, quirky, it, and it rang true. I think uh, the next bar or restaurant you guys do, maybe it needs to have trouble in the name. <laughs> we hope there's no trouble in any part of it. <laughs> no, in the in the most fun of fun yeah. ways. <laughs> Um, okay, so you get your first break. You're doing your the TV. Which show was that? My first show was called Knock First. Knock. Oh, I remember that. Oh, you go on the Airstream all over the place. Yes. That was really cool. Yeah, it was a really fun show because it was it, the the exciting part about it was that it here I am. I'm still in school. Okay, so I'm I'm at the tail end of my master's program in interior architecture. And they're saying to me, hey, can you design a room? Now, this is the production company, not the school. Production company says, can you design a room that tells a story about this teenager's life through the design? So they gave me these scenarios. One kid loves skateboarding, total straight edge kid, I guess, and skateboards and the whole thing. Favorite color is navy blue and orange, let's just say. So I, I said, thought oh, you remembered that. I don't know. <laughs> I think it probably was. It's amazing. And so I created a headboard that looked like a half pipe ramp. I made a whole bookshelf using skateboard decks, incorporated their colors. You know, I really wanted that when you walked into that room, you literally knew everything you wanted to know about this kid mm. through the design. There was one girl, the scenario was that she loves to read. She wants to be an actress, but she's kind of quiet. So... I created a, a drop, like a theatrical curtain that was pulled off the wall. Her bed was up against it, but behind the curtain was a vanity mirror, a clothing uh, rolling rack for her clothes. So she felt like she was backstage getting ready, and then she'd come to the front of the stage, and then there was like a reading nook. So there was, that's what got me that job was because I put all this energy into figuring out you know, how to tell their story. So it's back to what you said about story. And I think that that is so key, whether you're tasting wine from a sommelier or you're talking about design. I try to sit with our teams of our restaurants to tell them what the design story is so that they can impart that on their guests if they're interested, mm. because I think it's interesting. I mean, I, of course, I think it's interesting. But, you know, I think customers like to hear a little bit about the history of a space, if there is history to it. It's funny you say that because I remember, again, going back into the presenting it with love or just a smile. Uh, I remember my wife and I checked into, we were living in New York City. We checked in at the Baccarat Hotel, which is in New York. It was like a staycation for our anniversary. And I remember 
looking at a painting or a photo of some guy's hand or something. It was like a very weathered hand. And uh, a bellman, I think it was a bellman, came up. And I was like, oh, do you like that? I was like, yeah, what, what's it all about? He's like, oh, that's one of the Baccarat crystal, I don't even know what a crystal maker is, but one of the craftsmen who would make the Baccarat mm -hmm. crystals. Right. And his hand, it's, he's a French guy, and his hands were weathered and worn and being the Baccarat hotel. And I was like, he could really say anything. But the fact that he cares and knows, right. it really made my experience that much more memorable. Yeah, I, and that's exactly it. It's a it's a talking point, and you're telling me the story, and you're telling your listeners the story. So clearly, it worked. Yeah, it well, it does, and I, that's why I appreciate all of your stories as well. So as we get into, so you're doing knock first. Did you have a manager, an agent? No, like, how I did didn't you, know what I was on doing the, on the first one. You did, mm -hmm. but then so you get on all these shows. You're on Oprah. You're on Ellen. You're doing all these other shows, um, the Christmas light mm -hmm. show, like. Yes, it, it, all of those things happened. But is that you knocking, or is that your determination, or is it a yeah. teamwork, or like what? What is that? It's your drive. I think it's a lot of all of it. I mm -hmm. think it's a, a perfect storm. But the one thing that I, we were thinking about touching on this on stage, and I don't think we ever got to it. But I had this job right after Knock First, so that ended. I was devastated. <laughs> devastated. I loved it. I got bit by the bug. So I had found my first HGTV show. Guess where? Where? Craigslist. No shit. Yeah. Somebody said, oh, you should check out the media, whatever section. But it said, like, looking for a young, edgy designer on a new, or, yeah, looking for a young urban designer on a new, edgy series on HGTV. With overbearing Indian parents. Yes, yes. It must have <laughs> overbearing Indian <laughs> Exactly. You're like, oh, right. that's me. That's so me. Oh, my gosh. This is like perfect for me. Well, it turned out, I mean, look, it could have been some crazy, who knows what scandalous situation, but I sent them the link to the show that I had just done on ABC Family. I said, I just finished the show. They called me within 30 minutes, 30 minutes, and they said, we would love for you to do this show. And I said, okay. When I found out what it got paid, they needed me to be a New York local, but I live in Boston, mm -hmm. which meant being a New York local meant I need to get myself to New York. I have to put myself up in New York because I'm a local. And to be a Yankee fan. Never. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> so I ended up doing it and I was in the red. And I loved what I did so much that I was okay with it. I was okay that I was actually ended up paying out of pocket for every episode that I was doing because I, I was so excited to do it. And I had a conversation with the producer and I said, I have to be totally honest with you. I don't know what to do because I want to keep doing the show, but I'm literally uh, like, I have no money. <laughs> like I have, I'm paying out of my pocket because I have to either stay at a friend's house and like take them out to dinner or get a hotel and pay for the train and all these things. And I said, I don't think I can do the show. And it breaks my heart because I love it so much. And she's like, we're going to find a way to do this for you in Boston. Because she knew how much I loved it. And I think she knew that there was something there. So I proved myself. And my point of telling that story is that we can't get fixated on the money all the time. You know, there's, there's a time when you have to just do something because you love it. Because eventually, the money will come. Yeah. It has to come because you're loving it and you're doing a great job at it. I totally agree. But it's also this theme that's come up a bunch of times in speaking with you. 
and with a lot of the guests, but it's just so many people are scared to be vulnerable, to share that mm -hmm. with that producer, to say, look, I want to do it, but I can't. Most, I, I would say that many, many people would just let it run its course, go back to Boston, find the next one. Mm -hmm. But you, you showed weakness or you showed vulnerability, right. and then they... They adjusted for you. I, it wasn't even, I didn't even think about it because it was just so real. And and that is where we get down to authenticity and just being real. Don't have to sugarcoat anything. I tell my employees all the time, I can't help you if you don't communicate and tell me what's wrong. Because as much as it's consuming you, if something's bothering you, it's consuming you. I have a million other things happening and I want to tell you that I notice that it's consuming you, but I might not. And so if you don't tell me, my sole purpose is to help you succeed. And if you don't tell me what you need, I can't give you the tools to help you succeed. Because believe me, if I thought you were doing a shitty job, you wouldn't be here, right? right? So you're here for a reason. But I, all I want, my purpose for you is to help you succeed. And so I need you to do that for me. I need you to communicate to me what you need and I'll do it, whatever you need. I think the moral of this story is that you need to have better telepathic skills. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that'd be so scary. Can you imagine? Oh no, R ripping into other people's oh. thoughts, just jumping in there being like, oops. I uh, wish I could. I'd uh, be laughing. I'd literally be walking around like <laughs> laughing my ass off all day. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, Okay, so we have a bit of your origin story, mm -hmm. and I know we can all learn more. And this could be this could turn into a two-hour podcast, but um, it's kind of uh, what I'm seeing is there's this grit, there's this appreciation of self, but it was kind of a discovery of self. Like, wh who are you? Mm -hmm. How do you move forward? Then it's like just being kind of unrelenting, keeping two feet in the TV side, on the business side doing really well in, in each, mm -hmm. and it's gotten to you to where you are today, mm -hmm. right? As you look to the future, what's exciting you most? What's lighting you up as you think about the future? Retire. <laughs> retire. <laughs> no, uh, I don't think I'll ever retire, to be honest with you. I mean, I love the idea of it, but I, I just too much of a, I have too much pent up energy. My husband jokes around and tells me, that he's like, I swear you wake up in the morning, you're like tapping me on the forehead. Hey, 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 you, you up, are you up? You ready? You ready? What are you going to do today? Like, I just, I just have a lot of energy and enthusiasm for this life that I have. Mm. And I'm so grateful for it. And I'm grateful for the falls. I'm thankful that bad things, you know, not bad, bad things, but that everything isn't perfect all the time. It's okay. One thing that I, I, Try to encourage people to do when they have a setback is to take a minute and allow yourself to feel it, allow yourself to grieve and be sad. But in a, this might sound very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking like systematic, I guess, or I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but give yourself a timeline to be sad. Tell yourself, I'm gonna be sad for 48 hours. Mm. And after 48 hours, you're gonna pull yourself up and get yourself out of it because being sad is not going to change the trajectory of what just happened. So you can either get swallowed up in it and, and let that pull you down the dark hole and keep pulling you down, or you can make a decision to say, 
I'm, I allowed myself to grieve. That sucked. But I, I have to get out of this. I need to move on. And I know it probably sounds a lot easier said than done. When you're hurt, you're hurt. When you're in pain, you're in pain. And there's some circumstances, obviously, that it's going to be way more difficult than what I'm explaining here to get out of it. But if you can, just tell yourself, I can't change what just happened, but I can change what's going to happen. Yeah. Or, or additionally, you could get on every bus you could find and just start reading everyone's T-shirts uh-huh. until you find until that. Until you're the a... wisest person in the world. <laughs> and then <laughs> like you're out. you. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I am. But uh, I do get inspiration from bumper stickers and T-shirts. <laughs> so... They're really good. (laughs) It's really good. Um, Okay, I want to go back to your 17-year-old self. Mm -hmm. So you're bartending. Giant hair. Giant hair. Like, where are you? In Boston. Yeah. What was was the bar? Um, Well, I was waitressing because I was too young to bartend. It was a cocktail nightclub lounge. Near a university? Everything's was, near a university It was Boston. actually, it was in the Seaport District before the Seaport Distri- oh. District. What It was like fish market. And it was back when this by day was a fish market turned nightclub at night. And people were still allowed to smoke. So I would come home from the club and I would smell like fish and smoke. And your big hair. And my big of, Aquanet hair. Oh, that's amazing. Perm. Like 80s glam mm-hmm. kind of. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah nice. Yeah. Um, okay. So the Tanya I'm speaking to now magically appears in front of the 17-year-old Tanya. Mm. What advice do you have for yourself? I have a lot of advice to give 17-year-old Tanya because <laughs> 17 Have you thought about yeah, this? No, I actually never have. I know, truly, it's funny, but uh, you are asking me this right now, and I have to tell you, my old self was overly apologetic. Mm. I was always a yes girl. I never said no. I never wanted to hurt anyone's feelings. So I only did damage to myself because I was trying to make everyone else happy. I would do it to my own sacrifice. I might go somewhere I didn't really want to go, or I might do something I didn't really want to do. But I think the older I get, my sister always calls this out on me. She's like, you used to always just go along with everything. Now she's like, no, you don't want to do it. You're so stubborn. You don't do it. And what I've like actually said to friends even if they if they want to go do something and I'm just not into it, it's okay. It's okay. I just say, hey, you guys, go ahead. I'm going to sit this one out and I'm not going to feel bad about it mm. because I don't want to go. <laughs> or, or, you know, and I know this is just kind of a dumb example, but I mean this even in business. I might meet with a potential client and I'm not getting those vibes. I don't feel like this is going to go well. Um, and instead of me trying to force it, just to, because they want to work with me, which is so complimentary. And in your mind, you think, oh, they want to work with me. Of course, I want to help them. But it's not always the right fit. And it's important to know how to say no for your own good, mm. your own peace of mind. And the more you do it, the happier you're going to be. It feels really good. Yeah. I there's And there are ways to say no where the other person gets it and gets res- and respects it mm-hmm. and it's like oh wow i totally get it i have another friend he's like look if it's not a fuck yes i'm not doing it right and that's great i mean that's extreme i yeah. guess but that's like it's very enthusiastic <laughs> he's got a lot about of everything right? a lot of incoming <laughs> yeah. like but that's right and the older we get the busier we are and the more spread thin we are and you know more emphasis we're putting on our family so 
our time is so precious. I mm. feel like time is actually the most precious thing, more than money, more than anything. So it's how you spend that time is is so important for your own mental wellness. Mm -hmm. You know, I totally agree, and we're all given the same amount of time, and we mm -hmm. can't make more. Uh, and I'm super grateful for your time here. Thank you. I'm grateful for yours too. And I really appreciate it. It's been so great to get to know you. And I know we're going to have a wonderful relationship moving forward. And it's mm -hmm. like, again, it's all about the people in the relationships and finding those kindred spirits. So thank you so much. Thank you. This was awesome. And you are a great guy. I really appreciate all of your time. And your again, I said this earlier, your thoughtful questions and your inquisitive mind. I know that when we speak, you're, you're really listening, and I know that you're um, processing. And it is hard sometimes to just be on the other side, just listening, because as a podcast host, that's your job, mm -hmm. <laughs> ask the questions and listen and engage, and you do a really great job at it. Well, thank you. And Tanya, if people wanted to learn more about you or your business or anything, how do they, how do they find out more? Where do they find you? I make it real simple. It's at Tanya Nyack, just my first and last name. I'm not on LinkedIn, but I am on Instagram. I'm on uh, Facebook. I, I have a Twitter account. I don't use it that often, but you'll find me on at Tanya Nyack with everything. Great. And my website too. Awesome. We'll be sure to put it in there. And I look forward to continuing this relationship. And thank you, thank you, thank you. And also, thank you listeners, because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here right now. She wouldn't even give me the time of day if it wasn't for you. <laughs> <That's a> true story. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you because um, it just means a lot that you're listening. And if this has changed your idea on how you can present hospitality or design or your path or your journey, um, if it changed your thinking on that, please pass it along to others because we grow by word of mouth and we appreciate you. Thank you. Like and subscribe. Like, like and subscribe. <laughs> thank you.